you been looking for a podcast about agriculture? One that can increase your farm's profitability all without putting you to sleep. To sleep. Welcome to Field Trials Unleashed. We're experts in testing different farming practices and products. We test it and then report back the real skinny. This is Field Trials Unleashed. And here are your hosts, Craig Bloemker and Eric Beckett. Welcome back to episode number 14. I'm Craig. And I'm Eric. Eric, let's do a quick recap. We had a wonderful episode last week. Had a lot of good feedback. Nathan was just a, a joy to have in here, wasn't he? He was awesome and a lot of good points. And I think that's the general consensus. Everybody said, you know, there was some good points in there that I hadn't thought of before. So Yeah, definitely. I know I definitely took away a couple of things about the you know, I was I re listened to our episode and there was a couple of things about the cis nematode that remind myself that, you know, I wasn't maybe necessarily always thinking of. So it was yeah. some good information. But also in reflection, we always think about a few things. We're like, dang it, I wish I would have added that on that episode. Yep. So, so we wanted to cover some of those things today. Yeah, just recap. Um, so fungicide, I'm thinking there's there's some opportunity to try some different things, you know, additions to the fungicide tank in conjunction with fungicide and maybe insecticide, depending on what your scenario is. Yeah, and your pressures are. But um, we'll leave it pretty pretty generic. But I think there's opportunity to throw in something like boron or some kind of microfoliar just to kind of help finish this corn crop off. Yes, definitely. And then beans, I we've talked about it. We're going to do some trial work with some KTS. Yeah, so so uh, kind of the thought process because there that if you look at the response curve that uh, Belo developed a couple year few years ago now, uh, much like corn uh, going into VT, there's a big very big uptick in uh, nitrogen use, but coincidentally on soybeans, um, they're a big heavy user at of potassium going into you know into the reproductive stages that we are all in now. And so, you know, that's the reason why we're going to be using some products like KTS that, you know, to get some really good quantities of uh, potassium out there that the soybeans can hopefully take advantage of. So as I'm driving around looking at the next fields to be uh, applied with, you know, airplane for corn, I'm also looking at the beans, assessing those stages. And the one thing I'm noticing is, hey. We got some volunteer corn again, <laughs> don't we? Yeah, we've got volunteer corn. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's fields that we didn't get treated the first time. Maybe, you know, at the time of application, there wasn't any volunteer corn. Yeah, or even maybe the volunteer corn, maybe it had already germinated, but it was being shielded or being covered up by the stuff that had already germinated. So maybe it was already germinated, but um, it was just being shielded because, you know, the DIMS and the FOPs are two primary uh, volunteer control products. Um, they do very much so depend on coverage. And so if we don't get coverage of the product, uh, we're not going to get a kill of that volunteer corn. So it doesn't work in the way that maybe, say, glyphosate does, where it's a systemic product that even if you get a little drop of of active ingredient on the leaf surface, it'll go ahead and kill the plant. Uh, the dims and fops just don't work that way. We need to actually get coverage of the product onto the target species to uh, have an effective application. So, so you guys might be asking, well, what can we do now? Yeah, so what can we do now? So the, the two products that we have available, we can still use them now at the growth stages we are. Um, maybe the, uh, maybe one important watch out is if you are using a product like Fusilade or a product that has the active as Fusilade that um, 
we st- we got to abide by uh, a six ounce use rate after we get past R1. So that's the maximum amount that we can use in a single application. That's per label. Per label. And so then, you know, and then the other thing that we got to kind of think about is also is if we've already had prior applications of either a DIM or a FOP that um, we are not exceeding the total yearly maximum use rate. So those would be some kind of watch outs. Um, you know, and then the other thing that we got to also think about is if to have a, a successful, you know, maybe kill those volunteer corn, we need to also assess if we are going to mix it with our fungicide applications, what is going to be more important to us? Is it making a successful fungicide application or is it killing corn? Because if it's a successful fungicide application, we really need to be spraying at R3. And if we're spraying at R3, there could be a good chance the corn is going to be off-label for the, the chemical that we're able to use to effectively control. So we may not be getting, we may not get good control of volunteer corn. But on the flip side, if volunteer corn is your main objective and you're using a fungicide, you know, maybe we're going at R2 and that's maybe not the best time frame for a fungicide application, but we're volunteer corn is our primary concern. So then, you know, those are the kind of things that we have to think about is if we are going to tank mix a volunteer corn control product in with our fungicide application is decide which which one is more important to us. So, you know, e- each field and each case by case and each farmer is going to be different, of, you know, what, where their mindset is at. But I think probably a lot of the volunteer corn, I'm not going to say for every field, every situation, but I think a lot of the volunteer corn that, that I'm seeing right now maybe just maybe be cosmetic and kind of maybe is, you know, if it's really not bugging you, I, I think there could be dollars maybe spent wiser elsewhere or you know maybe save those dollars for your uh for your uh input cost this fall we'll get into that later so one thing i've noticed and i agree i think a lot of it is cosmetic and like a lot of my growers say hey it's bushels in the it's bushels in the tank uh some some extra weight yeah some extra weight so uh, i do agree however you know if you got to go after it we got to go after and so we didn't talk about clethidin. We were just talking about fusillade. And as you mentioned, six ounces uh, past R1, which most beans, I would say, are probably uh, past R1 at this point. I like to use clethidin, and that's just a, nothing against fusillade. I love fusillade. Uh, but I again, you're playing dollars and cents, yep. and a lot of times i got to use that money elsewhere. So I use clethidin, and we looked at the label ahead of this and cannot find any label restrictions. So again, as you mentioned, as long as we're not over the maximum usage for the year, we're going to be fine. And then the one thing you didn't talk about was the adjuvant yeah, piece. I was just getting ready to bring that up. So yeah, I'm glad you reminded me the adjuvant piece. Um, now, while, you know, I think sometimes maybe the adjuvants gets, gets forgotten about or maybe neglected, but you know, maybe some other reasons why maybe we didn't have a successful, you know, control of our volunteer corners. Maybe we weren't using appropriate adjuvant or, you know, maybe adjuvant at all. So that might be one reason. So, but, you know, also that's the other thing you got to think about is to making a successful fungicide application. Are we using an appropriate, are we going to use a uh, adjuvant that's tailored to a fungicide application? Or are we going to use a crop, something like a crop oil that's going to be, you know, more thought of in our, uh, in our post pass that, you know, we might've, tr- you know, first time we would have, you know, used to help control the volunteer corn. You know, some of the more advanced um, adjuvants like that we're using here, at Illini, um, they they do still contain a high enough adjuvant load in them that they will meet the minimum requirements um, per label um, of either even the fusillade or any clethidum containing products. They will still meet that minimum adjuvant load because I think on the label, I think I've seen they stated 
um, some like a, the NIS, a minimum adjuvant load of 75%. Well, the adjuvant loads that we're using with our fungicides, they've actually got a, a minimum 90% adjuvant load. So they're far exceed uh, those minimum requirements. So even if, you know, even if we're not using that traditional crop oil with our fungicide application, I think they, we should still be able to provide a high enough adjuvant load. So I would agree. I think the, you know, for us, it's the FS talent uh, for other companies might be a different adjuvant, but uh, I would agree. I, I've never used crop oil <laughs> with my clethodim yeah. applications or fuselade for that matter. And right, wrong, or different, I've had very little failures throughout the years. So uh, I would say that the FS talent in our, in our case is going to work wonders. Okay. So Eric, you hit upon it earlier. So I'm going to circle back to it. Uh, talking about fall input pricing and as we know with the rising commodity pricing and uh, looking at a pretty good year I think overall for for most areas not all areas but most areas been looking pretty good on yield yep we all know what's going to follow and that's the input pricing and I don't know that I know exactly where it's going to fall yet but I don't think anybody really does it's yeah it's a sad thing yeah but it's up yeah so just kind of Maybe I'm jumping the gun, but just trying to think ahead for fall here. Guys need to get a number figured out for their acre. We need to have a budget number in mind and just trying to find some ideas, you know, just brainstorming some ideas to either alleviate some input cost by not putting on as much or at least utilizing and being efficient with the fertilizer that we are putting out there. So making the most of that cost. Yeah, definitely. So as we think about like a traditional fertilizer plan, it may look like something like 200 and 200. So 200 pounds of map, 200 pounds of potash, or maybe 250, 250, depending on on what the grower feels like. And not saying that's a bad way to go. Oftentimes we'll find, and we're going to run through some numbers here in a little bit. Oftentimes yeah. we'll find that's actually pretty close uh, depending on what yields are. But thinking ahead, as I said, being more efficient with our fertilizer use or omitting some fertilizer use, there's some other ideas we have. And so at the very least, I'm trying to get my guys to consider fertilizing every acre on both corn and beans. And what I mean by that is we, we fertilized for what we just took off. So if we average you know, 150 bushel of corn on that acre or that field, we're going to fertilize the removal rate for that. Yeah, definitely. So we're basically, you know, we're replacing what the plant used. And, and you know, and now Craig is kind of getting at that, you know, this maybe be a cost savings measure. I'm not going to say this is going to work for every acre, every grower, a cost savings scenario, but, you know, if you were, if a grower was in that in that case where maybe you picked up a new farm, and the previous you know tenant hadn't necessarily been keeping up on fertility and everything, you're you know for, by all means you probably if you can still make the dollar figure work, still going to probably want to do that build up and maintenance to get you know your soil test levels back up to par where they should be. But um, for what Craig and I are kind of proposing that if you know a grower is in a good has been in a good fertility program. Um, there may be some real cost savings and then just overall some real good practicality to going to this method is just um, only fertilizing those acres that, you know, that need it. And so, we, you know, we, we've been using VRT technology here in East Central Illinois since the 90s. So, I mean, it's nothing new, nothing, you know, wow factor or anything to it. But, you know, really what we're saying is just let's just put on the fertilizer that we, you know, remove what we use. So and then and then throw VRT on top of it. So. We're going to be basing our VRT maps based upon, you know, from harvest, from our harvest yield maps this fall. And so, you know, that that could really be some cost savings. And then, you know, and then also 
you know, we need to really get away from, um, you know, fertilizing, you know, say we we're putting down our map one year and then putting down our potash the next year, putting our potash on our soybeans and, and our uh, map down on our corn. So um, both crops need P and K. Now, while soybeans do need more potassium than what corn does, um, it's still important to feed both crop each year. So that way, you know, we don't get maybe necessarily any luxury consumption of one nutrient over the other. And that, you know, the amount, the correct amounts that we need for that crop is out there at the time of, of need. So um, that's where I think some of these cost-saving measures could come into play this fall. Let's go run through some numbers real quick. Um, we're going off of U of I's new updated numbers. And so they actually lowered the removal rates uh, per bushel. And so uh, we proposed here on a 200 bushel average uh, that you're going to take off about 0.37 pounds per bushel of corn. Uh, and that would be for the phosphorus or P205. And that would roughly translate to 74 pounds of P205. So I, I know this is math and, and no one wants to talk about this, but so 0.37 pounds per bushel of P205. And on a 200 bushel corn crop, that's going to equate to 74 pounds of P205. And then that translates to roughly 142 pounds of MAP. And conversely here on the potassium, it's 0.24 pounds. So a little lower user of potassium on, on the corn. It's 0.24 pounds per bushel, which translates to 48 pounds of K2O. And that would be roughly 80 pounds of potash. So if we take a look at soybeans, say roughly a, a 70 bushel average, I don't think that's usually too, no. too hard to manage. Uh, we're looking at 0.75 pounds of phosphorus being removed, or 53 pounds of P205, or 101 pounds of MAP. So a little bit less than what the corn is. And then potassium is 1.17 pounds per bushel. So a very large consumer of potassium on the soybean side. And that would come out to about 82 pounds of K2O or 137 pounds of potash. So let's run the math here. I'm if, just impressed you're doing math on, on the air. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had it all pre-written, Eric. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing that. Uh, so if you add those together, both corn and beans, we find on a 200-bushel corn crop and a 70-bushel bean crop, if you add them together, that's about 250 pounds of map and just over 200 pounds of potash. So we're not too far off of a 250, 250 uh, you know, blanket coverage that we have been doing but then now apply this to a VRT map, this this same practice here, and you can see where you know where we took off 250 bushel in this this nice pocket, this zone of of heavy fertility or you know high management. We're going to replace what we put out there, and then we go down to like these pockets of these ponds, where we took like 30 bushel off because it's drowned out. We didn't remove anything, so we're not going to be putting anything back on in those those areas. So. I think there's a lot of practicality, like you said, and then the economics, it's not too far off. It's just about using more efficiently the fertilizer that we're putting out there. And that's, that's I th any guy that has adopted this practice has not looked back. And in fact, I think we have several testimonials within the company, even that their yields have actually increased after they've implemented this VRT by yield removal. Yeah. And even though that, you know, there may be a little bit more in application charge from year to year than say, um, if you, you know, say in June, all your fertilizer for two years, um, where the yielded benefits far outweigh any extra application charges or anything like that. Because basically, the fertilizer is out there when the plant actually needs it and where it needs it. And so, you know, we we see a real yield increase from from going to this methodology. One nutrient we didn't talk about, 
in partly because it's very similar. You know, when we think about nitrogen, we think about the potential for nitrogen loss. We think about leaching. The conversions that the nitrogen has to go to through to be plant available or the conversions that nitrogen goes through where it makes it, you know, you know, susceptible to loss and such as leaching or degeotrification. Sulfur can much in the same way do s- similar things as well. Yeah. So that's yeah, where I was headed with sulfur. So we didn't talk about sulfur management. I really don't feel like this is a, I don't feel like this is a fall topic per se. Uh, we could make the case for using MES-10, which would be half elemental sulfur and, you know, half sulfate sulfur, which would, would be subject to leaching. If you wanted to implement that into your management plan, you could. But I think sulfur, primarily to me anyway, is, is more of a spring managed plan. So I, there's a lot of options we could talk about uh, as far as implementing a good sulfur plan. But like you said, with the, the nitrogen, what do we do? We split apply it. Yep, and we stabilize it. And if it falls below, we can stabilize it. You know, sulfur, yeah. we really don't have that option, uh, as luxury. Far, yeah, as far as stabilizing it, but as far as definitely managing it in, uh, you know, split applications, by all means, we should definitely be uh, split applying sulfur. So, you know, having a base rate established with our pre-plant and then coming back with, uh, you know, maybe in, within a solution as far as side dress or wide dropped or, you know, some form that way. Or even a uh, top dress application of, of a product like AMS would be a great option for getting sulfur. My favorite, Eric. I know. My favorite. I did a lot of acres this year. Yeah. So you're mentioning the, the pre-plant. That would be obviously ATS yep. uh, primarily. That's the most affordable as far as a sulfur solution. Then you're going to get a little bit of nitrogen out of that. Yep, definitely. And then, um, you know, and then another option that, you know, I think kind of maybe sometimes gets overlooked or maybe forgotten about because it does come at a premium of form of uh, potassium, but another one would be potassium thiosulfate. Now, while if you were going to go over the top of crop with it, um, you're, you're going to want to use lower rates. And when I say lower rates, I mean less than the gallon per acre, because otherwise you could maybe see some crop response from it. Um, and then I'll just go ahead and preface that you wouldn't want to ever use ATS over the top because that nitrogen component is going to light up your crop. We get that question a lot, though. So, I mean, it's a fair question. Yeah. Uh, I, but yeah, uh, the ammonium part of the ATS would... Yeah, light your crop up. So I think these are all good points of topic. Again, we can't do anything about the rising input cost. Uh, and even as a retailer, as much as we wanted to, we don't set the pricing. The, the yeah. manufacturers of the product really set the, the premise and the supplies. So uh, as much as we'd like to help out on the input pricing, there's not much we can do there. But I think we do have some pretty good ideas um, to either be more efficient with the use of our products or eliminate some yeah, I mean, and since we're kind of on this um, topic of, you know, maybe the what the inevitable is to come to this fall is maybe some higher input prices is that, you know, I think that, you know, recently, you know, I get the opportunity to work with all the crop specialists. So sometimes I get a little bit broader picture than what you get, Craig, but I feel like there might be some hesitation or some guys maybe starting to back out of fungicide applications. And I'd like to really encourage all of our growers to maybe stay the course with fungicide application, especially within corn, um, just to mention that, you know, these fungicide applications, it's going to, you know, if nothing else, if it doesn't even put um, extra bushels into the grain tank, well, you might say, why are we even doing it if it's not putting extra bushels in the grain tank? But, you know, we also have to think about the the harvestability and the overall plant health benefits that come along with fungicide applications. So we also got to think about, you know, the ease of harvest. And if we have an ease of harvest, that means we're able to get through that crop a lot easier and more efficiently. So, you know, all modern combines these days um, have got 
you know, fuel usage readouts on them, you know, how much fuel consumption you're consuming per hour. So I would encourage growers that if you have a treated or untreated area, even within a field would be great. But even if you're just comparing maybe a couple of similar fields together that, you know, pay attention to your field consumption during, you know, while you're in those treated areas with fungicide. And I'd be willing to bet that your fuel consumption is going to be noticeably lower and just your ease of harvest, especially if we, you know, if we get some wind that goes through later this fall or, you know, later this summer and, you know, say we have some green snap or something, just that overall ease of harvestability, I think, you know, that's going to be a real benefit to growers. And I would encourage everybody to still stay the course with fungicide and, um, you know, and, you know, maybe not necessarily try to think about, you know, should we reallocate those dollars that maybe we would have spent on fungicide for anticipation of this, um, you know, maybe these extra input costs that are on the horizon. So uh, I've found, you know, through my personal experiences in life that, if you stick to the plan, it's usually still a good plan. I completely agree. And I, I would say I don't disagree with anything you said there. I, I do encourage guys to still use IPM measures. I mean, if if there's no disease and the disease triangle collapses for some reason, you know, or the pyramid, excuse me. Yeah. As we learned last episode, it's the pyramid now. But, you know, if that if that happens, collapse, and we do go into a dry spell and there's no disease out and there. And you haven't made your fungicide application. By all means, you know, maybe maybe pull it out. Reconsider, but there's still no substitution for good agronomy. You've been listening to Field Trials Unleashed. Agronomic trials, products, practices. What makes sense for you and your farm's profitability? Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, follow Craig and Eric on Twitter at Trials Unleashed. From there, you can get agronomic updates and submit questions for future shows. See you next time.